This is the voice of Toby Haydock. Whose voice did you expect on Toby Haydock's Who's Round? Ricardo Montalban's? Now, I think this is going to be an interesting one, partially because obviously it's my natural uh, instinct to contact actors. And, um, but I was worried that Who's Round was becoming a bit thesp-heavy, a bit of a lovey-in. So nice that a technician uh, whose experience of the show spans several decades, even though in very small chunks, um, has, has uh, invited me to a pub to uh, discuss some of the less actorly and more technical aspects of working on a show like Doctor Who and indeed many others. Uh, so listen up and enjoy Well, here we are. We're in a pub opposite Ealing Studios, which is appropriate because it's where this gentleman first rubbed shoulders with Doctor Who. So I'm going to ask him to tell me, to tell you, in fact, who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name's Bill Dudman, and um, I, I, I eventually became a cameraman at Ealing Studios. But, of course, like most uh, staff cameramen, we started as training assistants. And I, uh, although I joined the BBC in 1965... Um, which I can talk about later. I actually became a trainee uh, at Ealing in 1967, which means in 1968 I was a, a cheap extra technician on the uh, on the Doctor Who called Fury from the Deep. Fury from the Deep. We've Fury just from the a Deep. Few of the clips. Yes, and I haven't seen those for God knows how long. Was it 50 years? Well, 40, years? First, yeah, 40, 40 years? 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. And um, I, so I, I ended up being a, a trainee on the Fury from the Deep in the sequence where the um, the monster escapes uh, from the sort of underground tube and rampages through the laboratory of the, or the uh, whatever it is. It's yeah. so, so like a laboratory. Yeah. Now, when we did it the, on the first take, uh, there was a slight problem. Because unbeknown to the um, special effects man dressed up as an, as an octopus sort of squid character, um, the carpenters had put the hinges uh, on the doors that he was supposed to burst out of the wrong way round. So what this meant was that he came out, rampaged around, knocked everything over, got to the doors, realised he couldn't open them, so he put out a tentacle, opened the door and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> which was stuck in my mind, fortunately, as I may have forgotten the whole thing. Uh, so that, that's, that's really um, that, that my, my bit of fury from the deep, and it was great to see it again. And it was, but um, uh, we triggered a memory, didn't we, because um, I mentioned it was directed by Hugh David. Hugh David, indeed, yes. Um, yes, I, 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 rem- I remember him very much as a, as a director, but also I remember him as an actor, because another thing I did when I was a very young assistant was when he starred, starred or was the lead actor in um, a drama about Louis Pasteur. And what impressed all of us in, in the camera team was we were shooting that at the time on 35mm. So the maximum runtime you could get on a 1,000-foot mag was 10 minutes. And he had a dialogue, or a monologue, sorry, a monologue that, that lasted for 10 minutes. He did it in one take. It was amazing. It amazed everybody. And that, again, is one of those things that stick in your mind from many, many years before, previously. So, we're talking the 60s, and you, although your, your chief period on Doctor Who was, uh, was the 80s, but we'll get to there 
shortly because how did, so how what inspired you to become to well you sort of you were as you say you're a training <coughs> technician mm. but had your ambition always been to be a film cameraman or uh, were you not sure no well when I was at school my um, I, I was told that I wanted to be a cameraman now I think this might have come from the fact that I had a very early interest in hi-fi even when I was eight or nine I was making loudspeakers out of my mother's chest of drawers things like that but I also shot 8 mil, 8 mil film and I got used to that and when the BBC came round to our uh, grammar school in Haywards Heath in Sussex um, I thought I'd find out a bit more about what, what a cameraman is and and due to that, I I applied to be what was called a te- technical operator uh, while I, while I was studying for my A levels. But the deal was in the sixties that I found out after I had my first interview with the BBC. Fortunately, I had my first interview as a technical operator, and the most complex question was: "Here's two spools, fill in the rest of the tape recorder," which I could do. Now I couldn't have asked questions about how an oscilloscope works and all the other engineering things so I was quite glad I got through that but when I got my um, letter saying we will give you a job it wasn't the job I wanted because I'd passed my A-levels and if you passed your A-levels you had to be an engineer you could not be an operator so I ended up going um, into outside broadcast after doing a six months course at Wood Norton in Evesham which was the main training centre for engineering at the time um, while I was in, in Radio Links and Outside Broadcast, a lot of us junior chaps were put on an enforced attachment to Chiswick, which was the equipment department of, of the BBC. And because colour was coming in, um, they were short-staffed because there was so much new colour equipment to be tested. Now, this was an anathema to me and most of my colleagues. It was also run more like a boot camp compared to... Um, outside broadcast which was fairly easy going provided you did your job well and while I was there I was so frustrated and annoyed I saw an advert for training assistant film cameraman now I'd never heard of this this sort of cameraman before and I didn't even know that BBC actually owned Ealing Studios and um, so uh, it turns out that 11 of us from across the BBC applied out of about I think it was 800. This was just internal, not external candidates. And I was lucky enough to be one of the 11 to, to, um, to join, which was quite surprising because in my, um, in my interview, uh, I remember the camera manager asking me uh, fairly reasonable questions. How many frames are there in a foot of 16mm film? I didn't know this. So, but as I had a, just bought myself a half-frame stills camera, I said, would you mind making it 35? And he says, OK. So I said, well, it's 18 mil for the frame and a little bit more for the black bits. And he then said, forget it, but I still got the job. <laughs> well, and then <coughs> you worked, because it's interesting that your Doctor Who stuff later on is, is, is purely model work, as you said to me yes. in your, your email. You didn't go on location, you didn't work in the studio, you were in charge of the... You're an effects cameraman, essentially. And yet this is on the back of you having a very illustrious career, actually being the shooter, the director, the, the film cameraman on things like Blackadder. And uh, you did a lot of comedy. And two, two Ronnies. 
did I did um, two years and two runs was wonderful making the the 15 minute films at the end of each series which meant you could do anything from a period drama a medieval drama to um, uh, a, a Mickey take of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy all in the period of about six weeks so it was it was it was just wonderful but Blackadder did the the second series of the Young Ones. Um, later on, I shot all of all of the location stuff of keeping up appearances. So, uh, what, so how does somebody as a film cameraman get typecast as a comedy film cameraman? Then, what, what, what do you think it was well, that you brought to the table? Uh, it was mostly, well, you could say, a serious sense of humour. Um, you, you could get on with people trying to make programmes uh, funny. But it's a very serious process. But if you've got to have, you've got to be aware of humour, and that I always was, which is why when I was promoted to cameraman, unlike most of my colleagues who either wanted to do documentaries or drama, um, I opted for the the um, light entertainment and variety field. I had had some experience in it before, which made me I, I knew I'd enjoy it because um, as an assistant and an operator, I um, was involved in. Uh, the first series of Ripping Yarns with Mike Palin and the Phantom Raspberry Blower two Ronnie series back in the in the 70s uh, so I, I was sort of brought up a bit that way but it did suit me and I've not regretted it because if I'd have been shooting Wednesday plays you wouldn't have seen them you're still seeing my stuff on the telly now and comedy as you say is a very serious business so which 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 set of these classic comedies that we watch over and over again, which set was the most fun and which set was the, the hardest? Oh, uh, I think most of them were f- most of them were fun. The ones I suppose that were a rather strange, suited my rather strange sense of humour. I enjoyed most. The young ones is a prime candidate. I mean, I only did the film inserts, but just to be involved with that madness was wonderful. And I also did a, a Ben Elton um, thing that has never been seen since called Happy Families, which was a, a very long shoot, all film, up in the, uh, in the region around Alton Towers, in the village of Alton. Now that, that was quirky and weird, which is maybe why it's not come out and again. very complex old lady makeup for Jennifer Yes, Saunders, it did, it? yes. <clears throat> uh, but that, 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 was really good. that was really good fun. All the two Ronnies were good. Because of the, of the variety, variety was just you, you. You you never got bored. Some of the more sort of regular bread and butter sitcoms um, were still very pleasant to do, but I didn't have that edge of the seat bit. Like things like Don't Wait Up and things. They they were good bread and butter comedy with very fine actors, and they were they were quite funny. But I must admit, I liked the quirky side. I loved Kenny Everett, and I also loved doing Newman and Bedelian pieces. New Middle Bedin in Pieces was um, quite, a, quite a fun show, scripted but sort of loosely, which, which I quite enjoy really because you, you can all stick your oar in. Well, there was going to be a sequence uh, shot in the West End in, um, in um, what do you call it, I think of the name in a minute, um, not a party shop, sort of, God, what do they call it, when they sell jo- joke shop, no. a joke, a joke shop. There were... But they found that um, this joke shop wasn't able to accommodate them or it had closed down in between their reckeys and when they wanted to shoot. But where I live in Ealing, there was, there was another shop not far from me. So I said, I, I'll go down and ask them. So I went and they were quite happy, which, 
it was good for me because it meant I had one of the closest locations to my house I've ever had, which is great. But when we were filming it, um, there was a sequence where um, it was all about people of restricted seriousness, which meant people were born with large noses, uh, rubber ears, all the things you get in a joke shop, and they were going to do over a joke shop because that was the cause of all their misery. Uh, so they go up, they go up there and try and smash the window, but of course it doesn't work because they only use rubber bricks. But once they got inside, uh, they were able to smash the place up. And I, I went in to light the interior. Now, because everybody was doing all lots of other things, uh, I couldn't get any information whatsoever about how they wanted it to look. So I went in there and I lit it with oh, at least 12 colours, lime green, chocolate, mauve, pink, all over the place, completely weird. And they came in and we shot it. And um, when we finished, uh, Rob Newman came up to me and he said, that's the most inappropriate lighting I've ever seen in my life. It was wonderful. And I, and that, I went home a happy man. But that's interesting because you sort of straddle two different mindsets and even generations of comedy if you're doing the sort of um, uh, the Harold Snowed, um, you know, sitcoms for, for the family. But then you seem to be working with the new the new young bucks bursting through the yes. young ones, the Newmans and Badils. Did they challenge the system at the BBC, or was it all was it all once once you were there? It was still a BBC no, production, one in a, run in a BBC way. Oh no, no, they were still challenging a lot. I mean, some of the ones. I mean, one of the big names, or to be a big name, was obviously Paul Jackson. Um, mm. He was the assistant film uh, assistant floor manager uh, when I was um, doing the uh, Phantom Raspberry Blower and. Um, Marcus Flantin, who then went on to be the director when I did the two runners, uh, was the production assistant. That's what they used to, what we call it, a floor manager now, I think. Um, is the, or assistant, first assistant director, I think, with the new, but that's what we call them. So they, they were groundbreaking. I mean, the, the, uh, for instance, Blackadder was, to my knowledge, the first ever UK comedy to win an Emmy. The Young One Series 2 was the first one as a programme to win a BAFTA. In that, in, in of that ilk at all, because it, it was bizarre, groundbreaking, and caused a lot of negative comment, but an awful lot of positive comments. So that was really exciting to be involved with those. We've just oh, watched yeah. some lovely um, mute footage from Time and the Rani's, Vesta McCoy's first story, and you pointed the pink backdrop out to me, uh, which I hadn't been aware. Oh, what for, for, for shooting colour separation yeah. overlay or? Or what, what, what I was often called blue or green screen. Well, of course, it doesn't really matter what colour it is, providing that colour isn't in your subject. Um, the, the most extreme version, of course, would be uh, using a white or black background. If you're, you can, you can shoot that anything that allows the electronics to recognise when the picture needs to switch. So in this case, uh, because there was no pink in any of the stuff, it was deemed to be the best thing, and it obviously worked. But it's a pretty rare colour to use. And then, and the other stuff that you shot was the, of the strange matter asteroid going around the, the red planet. Yes. The, oh, yes. The, uh, we, we, we did one, one there. And the, the, um, what happened was that we had a revolving planet that had been designed by the model makers. So that was revolving, which I lit. But then I got on the camera, I, I fitted a, a glass filter, not too much of a valuable one, which I then sprayed 
in part uh, with a, um, an aerosol called anti-flare. It's a thing used in the film and TV business for dulling uh, polished surfaces down like sides of cars. So you don't, in case you, actually, you might see a light in it or you get a flare and it just knocks it down a bit. So it's a, it's a dulling spray. So I use that and with the help of, um, you might say, an opposite like... Uh, in, in, in Hibisol, I think it was called then, I think it was like a carbon uh, petrol-based thing, you could actually mould this dulling spray into a thin strip curved around the image of the planet so the planet had an atmosphere. It, it felt it had an atmosphere. There was um, quite an extreme one we did, which I, th- I think we'll talk about later on Star Cops, that mm. the same way is that we actually, um, using mirrors, we had the same planet, but using a semi-silver mirror, we projected Saturn-type rings on it, plus an atmosphere, which that, that really was quite something to do. Well, and at the time, um, Doctor Who, you know, we're talking about the, the, the last years of Doctor Who, um, and you're having to do um, a space and time series on a small BBC budget... I mean, was it? It's notoriously you know, a cheap show. What, I mean, did it feel like that? Did you feel like you were having to make miracles out of very little? I mean, looking back, I could tell we had maybe a slightly less budget than uh, another program called Star Cops. But I don't think it reflected once you were doing, when you were doing the effects. It may be because you were doing the effects before they ran out of money. <laughs> Um, we we had I mean the models were pretty good for the money and we used thirty five mil cameras and thirty five mil stock, which um, is not cheap. But the reason you use thirty five millimeter compared to the normal, which would be sixteen mil, is so you could degrade it with various other processes and it would still look good. The only time we used sixteen millimeter for effects was on explosions. Because at the time, the only camera we could really run at around 500 frames a second that we had was a 16mm camera. But they were fine for explosions because they're quite small in screen, where the stuff we shot on 35 would have been full screen. And by the time you... For instance, um, uh, if, uh, the normal thing would be if you've got a spacecraft, you'd, you'd have that on a like, sort of retort stand, you'd cover the whole thing in velvet so it didn't reflect light, and then the camera would actually be doing the movement. So where you think that the, the rocket's flying, in fact the camera is going the other way. But after I've shot it, then star backgrounds are put on and various other effects may have been put on, which is why 35mm is the best way to do it, and that was then, uh, obviously prior to uh, computer graphics. Um, and after Time and the Rani, um, you... you you didn't have a direct encounter with Ken Dodd, but Ken Dodd was in Delta and the Band of Men. Yes. You also did the, the model the model shots and effect shots for that. Oh, well, that that was that was one of the first things we did. And when I arrived on the, uh, on the special effects set in the morning to see an old Sharabang and a Sputnik, I thought, wow, this is this is um, going into your Space Young Ones territory, and that work was really funny because I, I didn't know the story at all. Um, so, uh, but we, we, it's all, it was all shot to the same standard uh, with the Sputnik smashing into the Sharabang and things. We just had this list of things to do that you find out later. And would the director have come to do it or were you sort of left to do it? 
Um, the the director would um, I think was it Graham Harper I think it was uh, for, for Delta and the Banner it was Chris Clough Chris and Clough. Um, Andrew Morgan did Time and the Rani but you ought to work with Graham Harper on Star Cops oh right right well they would appear now and again but they obviously they had a lot of other things they had to do so basically I worked to the special effects um, supervisor senior, the senior special effects man he was effectively my director because he was the one that was charged with producing these images which we all did between us, but that was his job. So it was his shoot, in a way. Yes. So what do you remember of the effects men? Mike Kelt you worked with, didn't you? Mike Mike Kelt I I worked with on um, Star Cops. I worked with other people like Chris Lawson, who was another chap on Blackadder. That was a lot of physical effects, you know, literally having trees fall on you and things like that, not not space effects. But most of the space effects I've been involved with was with Mike Kelt. And what's his approach? I mean, we, 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 our view of visual special effects men is that they're all mad and like blowing things up. Uh, but it's that I have worked with people like that. I mean, certainly, the chap who did Kelly Everett was you. You had to be fairly careful. <laughs> he was a lovely bloke. And there was a wonderful man I worked with as an assistant called Ian Schoons. Oh yes. That I shot. Um, I, I was the assistant on Rebecca with Joanna David and Jeremy Brett. He looked like um. Uh, a mutant Andre Previn, <laughs> in a way, and I don't think he'd mind that. I, th- I don't actually, I don't think he's still alive. He's no but, so he no. won't mind. <laughs> but he did look. He had a similar Andre Previn hairstyle. But you know, he would. He was. He was a very good person. But Mike Hilt was a very logical, dour Scotsman, and he is. And he currently runs a, a big firm called Artem. And uh, we got on. We got on very well on that. There. In the book of special effects, which I had to buy because it got my name in it once, um, there was a. T- he just said, um, "Oh, we chose Bill Dudman as the uh, as the effects cameraman because he he said he was interested, and it shows." And that's all he said. And I thought, "That's good for a tombstone." <laughs> yeah, it's a good epitaph. He was yeah. interested, and it shows. Yeah. yeah um, so, I'm no, he wasn't. He wasn't a dangerous man. The, the strange thing was, it was the problem I had getting a credit. Now, on Star Cops, which I shot for at least eight weeks, I think it was eight weeks, the Evgeny Goodneff, because I was working to the special effects man, didn't give me a credit. He wouldn't give me a credit on any episode, despite I did a lot of work on that. So when I was put on um, Doctor Who after that, and I had a long chat with the head of special effects and my general manager because I was very annoyed and they were as well I, I phoned up John Nathan Turner's office fortunately got his, uh, his secretary and said oh could you tell John that if he's going to give me a credit on Doctor Who that's fine but if he's not can he explain why both to me my general manager and the head of special effects uh, there was nothing said but I ended up getting a fair share of credits on Doctor Who maybe even some I hadn't worked on <laughs> and I, I remember some strange rat like like bat like creatures hanging down from a cave ah, ah they're the tetraps again from time and yes ah right because yeah. we you see we wouldn't have we wouldn't have done necessarily a whole episode of one we would have done sure, sure. bits we we'll uh, just had your, your sheet of yeah things yeah we'd have do. done bits so well, well tell us about the bats yes well, um, not much I remember. Obviously, our bats are smaller than the ones in the studio because they were they were in a model, and most of the time when you were shooting 
like space effects, you'd you'd shoot them at about if you if you know that um, TV runs at 25 frames a second, we would normally run those or, or film them at about 120 frames a second. So it actually upscaled them, made them bigger than they were in the movement, and that's what you'd often do. It's only explosions you shoot very high, but anywhere between 75 to 150 was around the, the t- what you would choose to shoot various spaceships and things like that. But, I, I, you know, it was only a very beef bit, the, the, the um, attracts. Yeah. The main thing I remember is blowing up of the... The base. The base. Yeah. Yes, that, that was interesting because uh, it's a very nice model. And imagine if, if you watch it and you see, like, little radar things going round, um, they, of course, would have been going round at a hell of a rate on the model so that when we slowed it down it looked normal and um, as I don't know whether you know as you might see from some of the effects footage that the the spaceship on the takeoff goes up the ramp and then stops obviously you cut away from it before it stops now we did that once but then we we felt we wanted a lot more feeling of the power of the engines we had the little light bulbs and we had a bit of uh, a little bit of mist coming out of it to so make it look like smoke, but it wasn't that that much. So we ended up, I ended up lighting it with red and yellow lights, backlighting a fire extinguisher going off, and that really was quite effective. And I hope you agree. No, it is. It's great model work. It's great model work. And the, the, the model work on Star Cops is is good as well. But we we said Star Cops was one of those shows that didn't quite didn't quite make the impact that it was hoped and, and, and is seen as a bit of a botched opportunity. Can you, can you well, see why that was? Well, only for, but I can't from an effects point of view because I think for the money we had, we did an amazing job collectively from the model, the model makers. Uh, there was a, a, a chap called Melvin who was responsible for making the, uh, the moon buggy which was basically made out of lots of plastic kits, but it, it was so multiple, suspended, it was done like a real thing. And that, I thought, looked as good as a lot of modern things, modern effects. And at the same time, I remember Thames Television putting out some space film where their effects were unbelievably bad, so it made us feel quite good. <laughs> so bad that um, there was a, a ship sinking in this model lake, and it went plop it just sunk and there was a moon buggy that you could tell was being pulled across the moon base by a bit of string it was quite amazing but ours was a lot better remote controlled all good quality stuff and our sp- and the, to shoot things like what we would have thought of as a hotel the, the uh, sort of near space plane uh, not only was it a beautiful model but um, it was just it, it's, uh, the effect became I thought very realistic there was an interesting point um, in the early days of shooting we had some deep space stuff and we had some uh, spaceships that were um, orbiting earth and I, I remember and if one of the, the maybe Mike Kelp querying why on the deep space stuff I was only using one light a very big light but it was one light I said well there isn't any other light out there it is the sun but when I got to shooting the, uh, the, the orbiting space uh, station, I would actually put sunlight and I would put a, a soft blue kick light as if it was kicked from the Earth, refle- an Earth reflection. And I, I thought that looked pretty reasonable. Some of the 
overlaid video effects of um, spacewalks by today's standard were not very good, but it was it was as good as we could, could get for the money and with the technology at the time. Now you're a product of um, the BBC training. You know, you went through yeah. the ranks and you learn on the job. Um, and then the BBC changed under John Burt, essentially. Mm. Um, was that an inevitable change? You know, we, when, when I do a lot of these conversations, everyone gets very nostalgic about the old BBC and very angry about the way that it's now farmed out to independence and there's no infrastructure. Um, are they right or are they being overly nostalgic? Should the BBC have stayed how it was? It's mostly a, a bit in the middle. Looking at the way television's... Um, Going um, with, a, say, for instance, that YouTube could come in, could become a TV station effectively, very shortly. Um, things did need to change, but maybe um, certainly at the, at the height when we were in the film unit dealing, the height in the what the early eighties, we were fielding sixty-three camera crews permanently out of the door all over the world. Now these people had amazing experience between them and there's really no not much no there isn't really any difference what we did and what you shoot on a feature film it was just you shot a larger format but really there's the system what you do is the same I, I don't personally feel bad about it because um i um being a person who likes to meet change head on i sort of enjoyed myself uh, with all the limitations and um if it hadn't been for John Burt and all the things that I ended up doing through him, I wouldn't have got to know all the people at Sony and um, ended up working there when I left. So it's it's fate. It's it's a personal fate involved and a public fate. But I do think I do think the John Burt here would maybe could have been a bit kinder. And um, you've worked. Um, we've you know, skimmed the surface of some of the, the you know huge names that you've worked with there's, there's Shirley Bassey, there's Stanley Baxter When I, was, I worked with Shirley Bassey twice um, as a cameraman uh, it was really just doing one of her Albert Hall concerts but the best thing was when I was an assistant um, we, we did the 19, I think it was the 1975 Christmas special now that, what that actually involved me doing personally as a, as a, as a young assistant was to we went to see the studio uh, production first that was done and then that night we we were dropped off at a hotel near Heathrow at about four in the morning we ended up getting a private VC10 having a private VC10 lent to us for five days by British Airways who were getting one hell of a product placement from this and we flew to Bahrain filmed with Shirley in Bahrain. Um, stayed at the brand, the new Hilton Hotel, and when we arrived at the Hilton, um, the um, production assistant, who was um, a very able person called Marcus Plantin, who was then suddenly became head of London Weekend, I think, um, he was he was given the task of trying to get the price down because none of us could afford to stay in this this Hilton on any form of BBC rate. So he basically had gone to the manager and said, you're not providing breakfast 24 hours a day, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, this is not what I expected for Hilton. He ended up getting, uh, obviously 975, but we ended up having the rooms at £6 a night. We were so impressed, we, we let him tell everybody individually, because that was, that was some coup. And on, on the... While we were there, I mean, uh, this might be slightly out of order, but while we were there, 
um, on the first evening, and this was almost like 24 hours working on this thing. We didn't get much sleep. Uh, but I was in the bar, and very unusually for me, because I normally, I very rarely wear trousers. I normally wear shorts when I'm working, when I can. But I actually had quite a nice sort of suit on, for some reason. It might have been in my early days. And the, uh, the co-pilot rushed in and had to get a message to the pilot. And all the senior staff, including the pilot, the cameraman, the sound man, were all in with the Emir of Bahrain um, having dinner. So as I had a suit on, and I'd already had about three gin and tonics, I said, um, oh, I'll go in, I'll, I'll, I'll take it in. So he gave me the bit of paper, and I knocked on these large doors, which were open, and I went in, and so I was told afterwards, I, I, I gave the pilot the message, pushed a chair in between the producer and Shirley Bassey, and said to the head waiter, you're not to leave until I've had my cream caramel. <laughs> but I didn't get thrown out. <laughs> And you had a cream caramel in between oh, Shirley Bassey I, and I the... I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> but so it, what gave you the courage has wiped the memories. So. I think so, unfortunately, yes. But that was an amazing trip. And uh, uh, fortunately, you managed to get a copy from the cameraman. So I still, uh, I still have the copy of that show, which is very, very... Because I, he was a lovely bloke, the cameraman I used to work with. And he died not long ago. But it, it was great to have that, because it was a big memory. Um, I was involved in the first series of Black Adder, and um, one of the memorable things was a night shoot uh, where we burnt them at the stake. We bur- burnt um, the two main protagonists, and Frank Finlay um, was was playing the witch smeller Persuivon, like a sort of witch finder general. Now it was quite amazing to amazing to Rowan Atkinson that he agreed to do this. So they were, well, supposedly on their best metal, having this really sort of top-end um, star doing their, doing their, um, their programme. But it didn't always work out that way, because on this night, um, when, when we shot all this stuff, um, we got back to the, the hotel, we were having a drink in the bar, and about an hour later, Frank Finley arrived, dressed fully as the witch smeller per Persuivon, and the production manager had left him on on location about a mile away from the hotel and he had to walk back dressed as a witch smeller he wasn't very happy but he did he did have a sense of humor so he didn't um, didn't last too long but it's not a thing you do with your top star <laughs> i bet someone was all over the coals for that yeah <laughs> yes and anybody who looks at the first series of Blackadder, like, for instance, the title sequence or anything, it's all real snow. It was the coldest location I've ever had in my life. We Woolworths in all in um, Annick, where we filmed it at Annick Castle, ran out of any form of thermal underwear, things to put in your boots, whatever. Everybody was frozen cold, and it was real blizzard, real snow all the time. So. Uh, remember that when you watch it and think of me (laughs) (laughs) and music's big for you now isn't it I mean is that is that what you're doing a lot uh, oh yes well yes it's funny when a lot of us sort of left the beeb or retired or did other work um, we we sometimes swap roles I'm doing more sound now than I'm doing any pictures and some of my sound colleagues are editing or taking pictures Uh, I think it's because all of us when we joined we all loved the whole thing uh, it was a classic um, thing uh, that 
sound men would have the Hasselblads and cameramen would have the best hi-fi. Uh, so it's not that unusual that I like doing sound. So uh, every, every or was it twice a month I make quality control recordings of our local big band here in Ealing at um, the Drayton Court Hotel in Ealing. And is there really just because the band leader plays the drums, he can't really hear the band that well. So I do pretty good, two, two mic, just a double mic, but pretty good quality recordings to give him an idea of what's going right, what's wrong, what's in tune, what's out of tune, where the timing's gone wrong. And it, I've been doing that for about five, year now, five years now, and it's been really good. Well, um, I've exceeded the time I said I would uh, commit you to take. So uh, I asked two questions at the end, uh, which I ask everybody. And the one is because you've kindly given your time for free and I don't get paid either. Um, <laughs> is that if the people listening to this should part with some of their hard-earned cash just, just out of gratitude. So I ask you to nominate a charity that you would like them to donate to if they've enjoyed this podcast. Right. Um, I think... Crisis. Crisis. Yes. Good choice. Uh, and then, because we're doing this because it's the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, which is just one of many of your credits, uh, what do you say to the fans out there listening, the fans who are still watching Doctor Who after it's 50 years on air? Well, I think you're quite valiant and also rather mad in some ways. <laughs> and on that bombshell, Bill Dufflin, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks to Bill. Um, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. We had more conversations after the uh, recording had stopped, so uh, I'm sorry we didn't get in time for the uh, anecdotes, more anecdotes about the two Ronnies. But anyway, uh, more coming up. Putting together another couple of interviews about a missing Hartnell story, which uh, which will appear on an internet near you shortly. But... In the meantime, it's goodbye from him, Bill Dudman, and goodbye from me, Toby Haydoke. Goodbye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who. Spaceport Fear. Welcome to Tartane Spaceport. We apologise for the delay to your journey. Well, this should be one of the busiest spaceports in the galaxy, yet it seems completely deserted. It's time. How do I look? Terrified. Thanks. What do I see in you again? We We welcome Elder Bones! Your welcome is received. Those of you with candles, step closer so that all might see. I'm Mel, and this is the Doctor. Did you see something? By the far vent, maybe. Maybe? Well, I can't see properly, can I? I keep telling them if we could just divert power to lights, we can see what's going on. I have been known to light up a room. Usually with his coat of many colours. Charming. Now's our chance to kill it. Get over here, Rogers, and start blasting. Don't worry, Doctor. I'm sure they'll be perfectly safe. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.